You're listening to the CLE Foodcast with Lisa Sands, the place for delicious conversation on local food and the people who grow, cook, and share it. Here's Lisa. Thanks so much, Bill. This is a special edition of the CLE Foodcast. This episode was recorded live from the Haymaker Farmer's Market in Kent, minimally edited and turned around very quickly. I hope you get a feel for the market through my conversations with vendors who include Lizette Barton of Barton Farms and Gardens, Andrew Pernetti of Western Reserve Heritage Seed Company, Danielle Morgan of Brockett Farm, and Megan Masoli of Renbox Farm. This episode is a partnership between the CLE Foodcast and the Haymaker Farmers Market to spotlight the market in its 30th anniversary year and to highlight other agricultural and maker businesses outside of Greater Cleveland and Cuyahoga County. This episode is also made possible with support from Chef Douglas Katz. Hello, hello. I am at the Haymaker Farmers Market today in downtown Kent, Ohio. This market has been going on for 30 years, making it Portage County's longest running producer only market. Now, this market takes place here every Saturday, April through November. We're on Franklin Avenue uh, and we span under what is known as the Haymaker Overpass, which is really just a section of Route 59. But it's very cool to have the overpass here because it's a spot to get out of the hot sun or the rain. Uh, It's where the music is. And of course, there's vendors under there, too. This market takes place every Saturday, 9 to 1, throughout the summer. And then it does move indoors December through March. So today we're going to be here talking to a few of the vendors, some of the leadership of the market who are shaping it and steering it through the 30th year. And they're planning a really cool fundraiser, too. And we will be talking about that in a bit. Haymaker Farmers Market has partnered with the CLE Foodcast to sponsor several episodes. And this broadcast is part of that sponsorship. All right. Hey, Lizette Barton, welcome to the CLE Foodcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I have had such a nice, um, let's call it an online and social media (laughs) relationship with you. We've emailed quite a bit, but it's really nice to sit down with you today from this market that you really, uh, you're a vendor, but you also donate a lot of your personal time because you are the president of the board of directors for the market, right? Yep, I am. All right. And how many years have you yourself been a vendor at the Haymaker Farmer's Market? Uh, So my mother-in-law, Diane, and I have been vendors for 11 years. It's our 11th season. And I've been involved with the board since 2013. So quite a while now, I guess. I would say so. I think that's a pretty long uh, run there. And you're... Or your company, your business, Barton Farms and Garden, is a producer of craft jams and jellies made with fruit, Ohio fruit, grown uh, really in the area, like right around your house, right? Yep. So we grow some fruit and then we pick everything locally. So we are committed totally to supporting local agriculture with our products. Well, and I will say, as someone who now follows your Instagram account, um, you're always stirring up some delicious jams and jellies and other things that what was it i think it was the blackberry peach oh yeah looked amazing (laughs) and i also saw a bottle of bourbon in one of the pictures what was that we do lots of bourbon um blackberry bourbon a customer recommend or suggested it because last week he kind of scoffed at our plain blackberry and i said you want us to add bourbon to this don't you and he said yes so we have peach bourbon and cherry bourbon also what does the bourbon do to the taste of that how does it uh how does it shape it a little bit differently than just straight fruit so it makes it warmer And um, it's not overpowering at all, but you definitely taste it. And it also is really good in cocktails then. So, like, if you make a Manhattan and you put in the cherry bourbon jam, it's super good. Oh, that's a good idea. (laughs) Troy, are you listening to that? Yeah, Troy, my sidekick slash husband, is here today with me at the market. So I can focus on talking with guests, and he's running my sound. I always appreciate that. The board is a very active board, and you actively support uh, Andrew Rome, who's the market manager of Haymaker. And he's been around here for, I think you said, since 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, why is this market so special to you? Oh, geez. It means <laughs> so much to me. I spend a lot of time here. Um, one thing you mentioned about the board, it is very active. So this is not like a kind of... Uh, something for your resume. Everyone really has to work very hard. It's a mix of community members and vendors, and we meet every single month, and we're all really involved with kind of everything that happens here. In our 30-year history, we've actually only had three market managers, so everyone that is involved is just super engaged, dedicated. They're all regular shoppers, so the previous two managers still live in the area, still shop here every Saturday, and they're both on our board. 
Um, this market is special to me just because of how community focused it is. So there are lifelong friendships made here. I have made real friends, not just on Saturday mornings, but like we actually hang out. Other times our kids hang out. Um, I think that's really cool. I think it's just really part of the fabric of Kent. Like every single Saturday morning year round, people know they can come to the city, get fresh produce, get fresh food, and then just hang out. Like a lot of people do that. Um, it's just really engaged. You'll see people, we'll see people shopping with us at like nine and then I'll go to shop myself and they're still here at 12, like eating under the bridge, listening to the music, hanging with friends. So it's just a really fun place to be. I feel like this is such a destination market. I guess most farmers markets are, you know, some people probably come get their stuff and leave, but the the vibe I get from this market and, and I, I should say I, a very long time ago, I graduated from Kent. So Kent, <laughs> As a city, as a place remains, you know, pretty special to me and watching it grow and change over time. I mean, it's been close to 30 years since I've, you know, left the college at Kent. But um, there's so many reasons to come down here. The market being one of them. The city, the little town is vibrant. The restaurants are great. The bike trail, the river walk. And it just feels very welcoming. I, I just that's that's something I get from this market. Is that a very intentional thing that you guys put out there? Uh, yeah, I think we do. I think that we hear the criticisms around farmers markets that they're kind of like these elite places and not everyone is welcome. And we really don't want that to be our scene at all because that is not Kent's scene. Kent's vibe is not that at all. Mm -hmm. um, so we do really work hard to do that. We work really hard on our food access programs um, to be welcoming to kind of everyone to be able to come. And I think really Andrew says this all the time is that every single person should have access to fresh, healthy food. So just in 2021, over $60,000 came through here just in food access programs. That's SNAP, WIC, TANF, um, all those things. So we do work really hard on promoting that. We also have a group of folks, the Socially Responsible Sweatshop, they're under the bridge. So they repurpose and upcycle all kinds of products um, and they donate a ton. So actually they are funding a WIC benefit, totally them, through the end of the summer. It's not a match. Anyone who uses WIC can come and get 10 free dollars, and it's totally funded through the sweatshop, so that's amazing. Uh, this, when you were talking about the city of Kent, I think that is really cool. They did the Dora down here, so like part of Franklin is closed. There are several restaurants who are really engaged with the market and use a lot of local stuff. Taco Tano's is one, and actually co-owner Emily Yan is on our board. Jeff Crow at Erie Street Kitchen gets a ton of product from market vendors, and he's, he'll be hosting our um, fundraising event this fall. So just, I think just people know to come here and it's a fun spot. Mm -hmm. I think it's wild. I'm, I'm guessing maybe the ownership has changed that Taco Tantos is still here. Yeah, the ownership and, has changed, but it's still just and totally Ray's, awesome. <laughs> and uh, just all of the places. I mean, it's, it's so fun for me to come here because it's familiar and yet... It's a college town that has evolved, and yeah. I think that's really, uh, really special. You were just talking about the importance of food access for everyone, and I, that's something that I feel particularly passionate about, and I want to always share through the Foodcast is, you know, it's fun to talk about, you know, experiences of all kinds, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I try to be really conscious of not making food this elitist thing. I mean, yes. we've we've turned it into, you know, Instagram and social media has turned into this valuable marketing tool that I'm sure is very critical to all of these vendors. I mean, I love seeing what Danielle at Brockett Farm is putting out there. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's storytelling, but it's so much more than just showing a picture of a, a delicious food and saying, you know, I'm eating this, right? Like yeah. there's just a better, there's a way to go deeper. And I think that um, that's one of the reasons why I just love coming out and sitting and talking with vendors um, like we're going to talk to today. In this moment in time, we're, we're all experiencing um, some economic challenges. I mean, it's been a very weird, <laughs> I would argue it's been a very weird like five years, but yes. particularly this moment, people are noticing that their, their grocery bills are going up. I'm sure vendors are noticing changes. What are you noticing here at the market? Is the support level Right, staying where it should be? Are are more people discovering markets because of the economic situation? I mean, do you have any insight on that from your market vendor perspective? Sure. I think a lot more people came out just when the pandemic started 
Um, something I am really proud of with Haymaker is that we didn't close. So we, d we were doing the indoor market in 2020 and Governor DeWine uh, issued the shutdown and we closed for one Saturday. We totally regrouped and we operated as a drive-through. So because we knew that not only people needed to still get their food, all of these vendors are small businesses who, whether, it's, whether or not it's their full business or if it's like a lucrative side hustle that is keeping them afloat, we didn't want them to lose that income. So I think people at the beginning of the pandemic also maybe realized like, well, hey, I can't get ground beef at Walmart, but, you know, Tierra Verde and Kaismore Family Farms has it at the Kent Farmer's Market, and it's the same price. There's this idea that farmer's markets are really expensive. Um, and for some products, it is more expensive than the grocery store, but you're also um, thinking, when you think about the food, where it's coming from, who's mm -hmm. growing it, all the costs associated, it's often the real cost of food. But I think right now, many products are on par with what you're seeing at the grocery store, right? So obviously bell peppers aren't in season yet, but I just saw them for like $2 a piece at Meyer, right? Mm -hmm. Ground beef is still like six bucks a pound here. So I, I feel like it's not such a crazy price difference. I don't ever think it really was. Yeah. Um, but I think now it's even more people can say, oh, I can get this from my neighbors, support my local farmers, mm -hmm. support my mm -hmm. local food economy, get a way better product. Um, so there's just so many pluses, I think. I think so, too. And I think it comes down to your personal values. Um, making a decision to buy eggs that are $6 a dozen versus four, um, buying ground meat that is maybe $2 more a pound than, yeah, that you could find um, at a, another store on sale is a choice that you make because, yeah, like you said, you're supporting your neighbors. You have some transparency about where that food came from. You know that the place from where that animal lived to uh, where it ends up all bundled up ready for sale mm -hmm. is a really short distance. Um, and that means something to people who shop a farmer's market like this. Yeah. And you can really tell. The reality is that some people can't come out here. And when you really don't have a lot of money, you have to make choices that are going to feed your family. Absolutely. And I that. And we all have to. Um, but because I think there are these benefits um, like SNAP and WIC, I think, and we work really hard to promote those through the Kent Social Services. They advertise for us and let people know. The sweatshop does a, distributes information about that, especially also the senior nutrition vouchers. The, sweat, the socially responsible sweatshop helps get that word out. And Andrew does a ton of that work. So I think letting people know that this is an option, even when their finances are tight, mm -hmm. um, I think that's really important work to be done. Mm -hmm. And I also will say that something I've noticed is when I do purchase something from a market that's local, um, it's amazing how much longer it lasts. Oh yeah, that's because you know it hasn't been trucked from somewhere like California. And you're right. Um, I wanted to make that point, but I also say that we all have our shortcuts. We all make yeah. our Aldi run. We all do the things that we need to do to balance. I mean, right now I'm shopping at maybe three different types of stores. You know, to stay within my budget and um, support all of the different um, people that I want to support. So yeah, it, it varies for all of us. But I think it's so fantastic that you have these options for people that really might find themselves in a place of struggle. In fact, let's use this moment. I know next to me setting up shortly will be Edible Kent. Um, and you were talking about how they plant plots of land in various areas with um, with edible food. Can you sure. tell me a little bit so, about that? So our partnership with them is through these beds here. So we have an Adopt-A-Spot program through Main Street Kent, which is also a fantastic organization, really supportive of us. They do a ton of great stuff downtown. Um, and so Edible Kent works to plant all edible food in these beds. A lot is perennial. And it's anyone is welcome to come down and pick whatever they need all the time. And Edible Kent will be here. There'll be volunteers to come out and weed throughout the season. And today they're, they're painting their plant markers so people can identify what the plants are. But, yes, it's totally available to anyone walking through Kent to get a bundle of kale on, on any day of the week. That is really awesome. All right. Well, I want to give you a moment as a vendor. And, um, and, and again, thank you for inviting me to come here. Thank you for supporting the work that I'm doing. Uh, this is just such a pleasure. I mean, it's a beautiful day. Uh, the heat is gone. Uh, it's actually, it's windy. It almost feels, I feel like it has that September-ish kind of feel. It totally it's very does. weird. But um, why don't you tell me just a little bit about Barton Farms and Gardens and the array of products that you have and oh, what's looking you. good? What should people pick up when they come to Kent from your stand? So we focus on jams and jellies, as we talked about. And uh, right now we, well, strawberry season is kind of ending, but we have lots of strawberry stuff still. 
and we just picked raspberries. So we have a plain raspberry jam today that's just really awesome. Ooh. We use kind of old school methods, so we try not to use very much commercial pectin. We always want to have more fruit than sugar. So the raspberry is actually um, three parts raspberries to two parts sugar and it's super, super good. We also do grow vegetables, so we grow a lot of hot peppers and specialty hot peppers, a lot of herbs, stuff that we'll use in our jams and jellies. And then we also grow tons of leeks and onions, a variety of peppers, so we'll have those Ooh, later in the season. Do you cook that down and make like chutneys and stuff Ooh, like yes. that? I mean, those that kind of stuff we do for at home. I use like so much of that in those kinds of things. Yeah. Yum. I use also do, I, and just to encourage other people to use stuff that's kind of on its way out to create other things with it. So we just did all these strawberries. We saved all the tops and I mixed them with mint and sugar and I'm making a strawberry simple syrup out of it. Right. So you're not wasting the top when stuff's about to like, when you have peaches and they're like about to go, right. You can um, make a shrub out of them. So like a peach basil shrub, it's like an old, preservation method where you kind of add vinegar and then it makes like a great drink with like a sparkling water or a cocktail yeah Mm -hmm. so good and they're super easy to make so i love uh, any kind of food preservation is totally our bag amazing (laughs) i don't think a lot goes to waste in your house and if it does it probably goes to a compost it goes to a big compost or chickens yeah good for you all right well we are at the haymaker farmer's market throughout this episode we're going to be talking with some different vendors i know i want to introduce you to them they all bring something unique and different to this market If you want to know more about the Haymaker Farmer's Market, visit haymakerfarmersmarket.com and you can give them a follow on social media. They are at Haymaker Farmer's Market. Thank you so much, Lizette, for inviting me here. In the meantime, I'll probably get out and walk the market and do some shopping. Thank you. All right. This is Lisa with CLE Foodcast. We are recording from the Haymaker Farmer's Market in Kent. My next guest vendor today is Andrew Pernetti. He is the owner of Western Reserve Heritage Sea Company. Andrew, thanks for stopping by today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Lisa. Well, you have one of the most, um, I would say, like, bountiful vendor booths here. (laughs) I mean, I've been here a couple of times this year. You always have such interesting plans. I was just taking a look at the pawpaws, which I just always think are fun. And I really, really want to get to the Pawpaw Festival this year. I think it's in September. I think they're having it. I got to get down there. So... Um, You are the owner of a seed company that specializes in uh, non-GMO, non-hybrid, open-pollinated heirloom and heritage seeds. I cheated. I read that off your website. (laughs) Will you sum up what that actually is? You know, the open-pollinated heirloom seed part of the the business is uh, really for gardeners and farmers who are interested in being able to grow the plants out, save the seeds, re-sow those seeds the next year and have them come back true to type. So most of what we find in like places like some of the big box stores or garden centers are going to be hybrid fruits and veggies. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. However, when you save the seed and you try to grow it out next year, it's going to be different than what you may have expected or what you had previously. And so that portion of my business is, uh, is really meant to provide people with those types of uh, plant and seed products. You know, we do everything from fruits and veggies to flowers and herbs. We also grow a lot of those and sell them here at the market. So what you see in the booth now is really a lot of those plants that are grown out from seed and we offer them here at the market. So when someone buys one of those plants, they put it in their own home garden If they want to perpetuate that, particularly if it's an annual, are are they then or should they, can they uh, get those seeds, extract those seeds and save them themselves? And is that by nature of is that preserving heirloom seeds? It is. Yeah. So an heirloom is something that's passed down from one generation to another. So you can kind of think of it like an heirloom piece of furniture or whatever. And so, you know, oftentimes we have a history of coming from people who had gardens and our grandparents had gardens, our parents had gardens and people prior to being able to buy a lot of these things in the stores or online saved the seeds and they grew them out every year. And so as uh, they pass them on to their kids and to their grandkids and stuff like that. That's where the, the term heirloom comes from. And so you could also consider it like an, a heritage seed or a heritage apple. You know, maybe it's not necessarily passed down from one generation. Perhaps it's, you know, something that's been in a, a region or an area for a long time. And so it has a certain heritage for the, for the region. So a gardener could take a plant, bring it home, grow it out, save the seed, 
plant that the next year and uh, yeah it should come back exactly true to type as long as it hasn't crossed with any any of the other plants in the garden. Interesting so I'm, I'm gonna have you dumb this down even just a little bit further for me. I am growing a tomato plant right now yeah. it is probably not a heritage tomato plant I will admit that um, or an heirloom tomato plant. I have a tomato. How do I extract those seeds? Do I just pull them out? Do I dry them? Just tell me a little bit about the process if somebody wanted to go down that road of a seed preservation themselves. Yeah, so for the home gardener, it's pretty easy. You could just uh, take a ripe fruit, extract the seeds, put them in a paper towel, let the seeds dry out, and uh, you should be able to use those. If you were looking for a higher you know, germination percentage. You can also ferment the seeds and that, you know, typically uh, will break down any, any coating around the seed, uh, helps them kind of get them a little bit farther along through the germination process. But for, you know, home gardener, you just, you know, take a nice ripe fruit, spread the seeds over a paper towel and you can just save that paper towel for spring. Interesting. Now, are the plants that you cultivate, are they hardier? Uh, are they more disease resistant? Or are they actually uh, somewhat more fragile? Tell me about them comparatively to something I might go and get at Lowe's. Is there yeah. an apples to apples comparison or are they very much like, I don't mean to use that metaphor, but apples to oranges? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit different. So, you know, uh, maybe a, a vegetable breeder, a plant breeder would breed a particular plant for shelf life, uh, for disease resistance, those kinds of things. And maybe they're sacrificing the quality of the fruit or the taste or whatever that might be. And so, you know, a lot of times with these heirlooms and heritage types, you know, the flavor is a little bit more, maybe it's got a thinner skin, uh, but they're oftentimes bred for flavor and not necessarily, you know, shipability or shelf life. Mm -hmm. Well, I was just visiting with Bent Ladder Cider and talking with them and visited some of the apples in their heirloom apple orchard, which yeah. is a place that, you know, the customer doesn't usually see. And he was explaining, he's like, now these apples are not going to look like the apples that you want to pick off a tree and eat. And they really, really didn't. They had tougher, more interesting skins. They were um, shaped differently. They, they are definitely not. Russeting. Yeah, they weren't really, um, they weren't what you think of when you think of a beautiful apple. But he was just talking about that some of his varieties go back centuries. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, which right. is really, really wild to think about. Talk to me about some of the things you have. I did see the herbs. And, and I guess because I'm thinking about we're at a farm market, I'm thinking more about food. Yeah. But you also have, um, yeah, some garden plants and things like that. So so what kinds of things um, might people find at your stand today? Yeah, ed edible landscaping plants, pollinator attractors. There's a real big focus on native plants. So like, for example, like native persimmons, pawpaws you mentioned. But we're not necessarily exclusive to native plants or native edibles. Uh, we do we do apples and we do a lot of the different heritage apples. Uh, we have an apple from Johnny Appleseed. So this area was originally kind of not want to say develop but Johnny Appleseed came through here planted a lot of orchards so homesteaders could basically claim the land and so we do grow a couple of the apples that Johnny Appleseed originally planted here we have uh, some older heritage apples um, you know maybe small you know really delicious table apples that might be considered a crab apple for some people. Uh, so we do a lot of those unusual varieties. Uh, definitely things that will attract pollinators to, to the landscape, uh, a lot of herbs, things mm -hmm. like that. So. From your perspective, it seems like, you know, I'm a marketing person by day and I think that the way we talk about things um, you know, when things start to take off and kind of get into the public consciousness, a lot of that is very intentional. And it seems like over the last five years, people, even in my suburban neighborhood, are thinking about pollinators. I want to plant things that attract pollinators. From your perspective and your line of work, can you talk a little bit about the importance of thinking about pollinators when you um, determine what you want to put in your own yard? Yeah, totally. I mean, here at the farmer's market, I mean, everything is, is food that surrounds us. And, you know, a lot of this food is going to require a pollinator in order to to go from a flower to a fruit. Uh, not necessarily everything. Some things are wind pollinated like corn or wheat, uh, but most things are gonna require a pollinator. And so for pawpaws, that might be the, a, a fly. Uh, for different things, it might be honeybees or solitary bees. So there's a lot of different pollinators that we need to attract into our garden in order to make our garden abundant and have fruit and veggies that we enjoy eating. And so in order to do that, you know, you have to have an ecosystem that's gonna support that kind of 
the wildlife. And mm-hmm. so by being able to bring bees and pollinators into the garden, you basically, you know, give yourself an advantage as a gardener or a farmer. Tell me what the Safe Seed Pledge is. So the Safe Seed Pledge is basically saying that we will not sell anything that's genetically modified. Mm-hmm. And how strongly do you feel about that? Uh, we, we definitely feel very strongly about it. Um, you know, there is uh, a lot of controversy around genetically modified organisms. And it's not something that we have a business model in. We provide open pollinated heirloom seeds, and there's plenty of other companies that can provide a genetically modified plant. Of course. Yeah, that's not what you do. And I totally get that. Again, if you're stopping by the Haymaker Farmer's Market, you absolutely need to stop at the Heritage Seed Company's stand. And if you're interested, I can tell you that this guy will answer all of your questions if you actually do want to get into preserving seeds. You know, uh, up in Cleveland, there's the Cleveland Seed Bank. I know there's a number of resources to help you on that uh, seed collection and preserving journey, just like Andrew at Western Reserve Heritage Seed Company. If you want to get more information on Andrew and what he does, go to heritageseedco.com, and they are also on Instagram. Thank you so much for, I know it's a big topic, and I really appreciate, I know you have a very busy stand today. People are wanting to buy a lot of your plants. Thanks for stopping by the CLE Foodcast. Thanks, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. So June is Ohio Wine Month, but as an Ohio Wines Ambassador, I want to tell you that every month of the year is a good time to enjoy Ohio-grown and Ohio-made wines. Use findohiowines.com to plan your next adventure. And follow CLE Foodcast on social media to see more places you can go to enjoy Ohio's wines and vines all across the state. With more than 300 wineries in Ohio, you know there's one close to you. That's findohiowines.com. All right, we are back at the Haymaker Farmers Market. This is Lisa with CLE Foodcast, and we have taken the show on the road. Today I'm with Danielle Morgan, who with her husband Ed runs Brockett Family Farm. Hey, Danielle, how are you today? Hi, it's wonderful today. It's so gorgeous out. I love being here right now. It feels awesome. The heat has broken. It's actually, I didn't want to complain about the quote cold, unquote, but it was really chilly this morning. It felt kind of like September. Yes, yes, it did. But everybody like this market gets so busy when it's that perfect temperature. I love it. Like everybody's out excited. We were just talking to a customer that was like, you know what you feel like when it's nice in Ohio that everybody's like, oh my gosh, weather emergency. We have to get out and do all of this stuff. Oh, well, I think today, this weekend is in my mind, it's absolutely perfect. So, well, thanks for stopping by this awesome tent that the Haymaker Farm folks have set up for me. So I was doing some research on your farm and I'm already a fan of at least to one of your products and we're <laughs> going to talk about that but you are a brocket and your family farm or the farm that you currently operate has been in your family for something like 200 years tell me about the history yes. of your property yeah so from what we can tell it's at least been 150 years um, i haven't dug been able to find out much more yet uh, plan to at some point but It has been in our family for a long time, and it's been so many different things from a turkey farm in the, I think that's when it was most notably known as a farm, was probably in the 60s and 70s. They raised about 12,000 turkeys on range, though. Wow. So it was was really well known on that farm. Uh, We've had customers come up and say, we remember working on that farm when we were young. And it was so cool, but they were all Thanksgiving turkeys. So they did all of that, sold all of them at Thanksgiving time, which is amazing. And you said a word or a phrase that I want to just dive into for a minute. You said on range. So 12,000 turkeys on range means what? They're in a big, giant area and they're wandering freely. Yeah. They put them out on the entire pastures throughout the property. So there's 100 acres and they used to keep them on all the property. And like the neighbor had always lived there and she said she remembers growing up and seeing them all out there on pasture. My dad tells stories about staying up late and watching for coyotes. I can imagine that is crazy because like when I visited Yellow House and stood in the middle of their turkeys, I think they only had 300 and it seemed like hella lot of turkeys. They're so loud too. They're so loud. They were oddly, um, I want to say they were oddly friendly and engaging. It actually made me think a lot about the bird that I had eventually purchased from them. (laughs) It was just an interesting connection for me to make, which I do believe that everybody should make, honestly. So you're seventh or eighth generation. 
Yes, that's from what I can tell. So the, the brackets have been pretty highly documented, so it's really great that I can track that back and see that literally farmer is listed as occupation on all of those people. I challenge you guys to look back at your at your history and see, you know, when was the last person that was actually a farmer, if there mm. was anybody in there. It's people today are so removed from their food. Like you said, going to see that turkey is really important because that's not that's not normal anymore. No, it's to not see that in your family. No, we like to see it all shrink wrapped and frozen and, yeah. and not really think about it. You met your husband Ed. Now was he a farmer then before <laughs> you got him involved on the Brockett no. farm? No, and he has embraced this fully. I give him so much credit because we laugh. My parents live on the property as well. And he's like, I feel like I'm constantly judged because your parents have been doing this forever and I've been I grew up with it. And here he is like, all right, I'm just learning it. I'm trying to, you know, embrace it and do it all on my own and like make my own way. Because a lot of people in farming that are multi-generation, it's what your grandpa said. Your grandpa said, this is how you do it. Dad does the same thing. You keep doing the same thing. Well, he's brought in different ideas because he's come from outside of it. And I, my dad pushed me to leave the farm. So when I left, it's the same thing. I came back and I'm like, well, wait. What about this? This doesn't make sense. This does. Things like that. Well, how did you personally get into uh, farming? So actually, I grew up on that farm with my dad and he did a dairy. So we had a small dairy when we were growing up. He got in and out of it over time. And then um, basically he, he pushed me to leave. <laughs> he said, "Get the farm will always be here if you want to come back. I was really in love with the farm, but he told me to, to get out. So I left and I went to school and did accounting. I moved to California, picked a place on a map and just was like, let's just go and didn't know a soul there, moved out there, and then two years later ended up coming back to the farm, um, but didn't necessarily get involved on the family farm. I went and managed a large dairy, and I've worked in agriculture ever since. So for about 10 years now, I've worked in corporate agriculture, basically, technology specifically for dairies and other uh, grain, different types of operations. And then my husband and I kind of started our own stuff, too. We were buying beefalo on the side, and then we started getting into turkeys, and pretty soon we had bought the part of the property. So it just kind of led one thing to another, and here we are back into it again, which is it's fun. It's exciting to me to be able to raise my kids, hopefully the same way that I was raised. <laughs> I think that must be a really um, beautiful existence. One thing that you do so well is your social media and um, Yellow House. I always tell Kristen Hensley she does. It's it's so great to have a real peek into the day in the life of a farmer. I mean, there is something kind of idyllic about it. It can be very beautiful. The sunsets are pretty. But um, Amy, who's one of the board members, members, just stopped by. She used to own Breakneck Farm. She yes. was talking about how sweaty and hot and dirty. <laughs> and, you know, Kristen Hensley just has some hilarious stories that yes. she shares. That transparency is really fun. Do you enjoy sharing your farm with, with people in that manner? <laughs> that is my favorite thing to do and one of my long-term goals as a farm. It's not to, you know, just sell a bunch of products, really. I want to connect people with the farm because, again, like I mentioned, people don't have that connection anymore. And to me, it's something that's really special and important to be able to, to see what really happens. And I, I tell my husband all the time, I'm like, you know, basically... If, if I'm not proud of what we're doing, if I can't share every single thing we're doing, then why do it? I don't want to be, you know, hiding things. I want people to see what this life is really like. And you might look at my, my Instagram and all the pictures are really pretty. But if you follow on our stories, I try to put the more like the, mm -hmm. the tragedies that may happen. Yes. Like in the past I've posted, you know, we had coyotes take out some turkeys. Yes. And I, I put a little warning up and was like, you know, some graphic pictures coming up. But and the same with processing. I try to walk people through, uh -huh. what are we actually doing? Mm -hmm. How are we ensuring that, you know, these animals really are living the best life that we can possibly provide and only having that one bad morning, mm -hmm. basically? Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about that. So what are you currently raising on Brockett Family Farm? We promote more the beefalo and the turkeys. We also have chickens, a couple of <laughs> horses that we rescued, and just random assortment of animals. Mm -hmm. But the turkeys and the and the beefalo are our main items, and we ra we put them on range as well. But the difference between what we're doing now versus what they were doing then is mm -hmm. we've got them on small pastures that we rotate. So what we've seen happen is all of a sudden this ground, the grass and the soil has just gotten so much better by mm -hmm. having these animals rotated. 
10 times the amount of work. <laughs> My husband hates me, but... <laughs> yeah, I watch, uh, I live in Brexville and I drive past Trap Family Farm often. And he is often out there rotating, like the turkeys are in one section, the pigs in one section, and then three or four days later, they're completely moved. Exactly. It blows my mind. That's exactly. what you're doing as yep. well. Yep. So I, I got in, I've always asked a bunch of questions. I always push things and like my, I work with a crop consultant and he's always like, cause I say, well, can't we do it without chemicals? Why can't we do this? And he picks at things and he's like, ah, you might be able to do this. And what we found is that the questions that I was asking align really well with regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. So the crop consultant kind of helps advise us like this year we did a native pasture and he's talking about, here's how you should rotate your animals to best utilize that without destroying the ground to leave pollinator spaces, right. things like that, that are more working with nature. Because that's what I asked him. I was like, why can't we do that? People used to, not on a large scale, of course, but mm -hmm. I, I really want to work with nature, mm -hmm. not against. Yeah. That's the goal. And I think large agriculture is very efficient, but it often works against nature right. to provide cheap food for people. Exactly. I mean, it all comes down to, yeah, cheap food. Well, before we talk about my my new favorite beefalo, um, Gidget, is sitting very patiently on your lap. And I know, Gidget, are you ready to talk to me um, in the microphone? Yes. You can go up. You can put your mouth right by the microphone. So what are you selling at the market today? Dill, which is named after the dill pickles. And it smells like the dill pickles. It really does <laughs> smell like the dill pickles, actually. And I think you're selling it for like a dollar a bunch, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> that is an amazing deal, or a dill, should I say. <laughs> Did you get that joke? <laughs> I'm going to come by because you know what? I like to pickle things. I just do really easy pickles, um, but I might have to come by and get some dill when I buy my, my beefalo. Mm -hmm. What else are you selling over there? I thought I saw some beautiful looking lettuce. Tell me about your lettuce. The lettuce is from my garden because... If my lettuce has been going crazy, that's why I'm using that big pot. It is. There's so much lettuce over there. So do you like growing things in your garden and then you bring them to the market to sell, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's a little boring doing some of the stuff. Like what stuff is boring? Like weeding. The only thing you do is sit there and pick stuff out. Um, you know what? Actually, we need to go home and weed one of our yard gardens as well. So I feel you on the weeding. Not my favorite. What about sitting at the market? Do you enjoy coming to the market? Yeah, I like being able to like see people buying stuff from Pizza. And are you saving your money that you make at the market for something in particular? No. No? You buy cookies. She oh. buys things at the market. We, we laugh because we put things right back into the local economy. <laughs> you know what? That's a, great, that's a great thing to do and a fantastic lesson to learn. And you have a little sister at home, right? What's her name? Elsie. Elsie. And she sometimes comes to the market with you too, right? Yeah, not that many times because she never stays that long. Yeah, I know. It's She's a lot to sit for four or five hours in a market. It's hard work. That's why she usually goes to my aunt's house or my grandma's house. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the CLE Foodcast. I, I really appreciate you joining your mom as a guest. So before we go, I want to talk about beefalo because I remember when I was visiting this market earlier in the year, I see your husband sitting there and a sign that says beefalo. Oh, that's when I bought some rhubarb of yours. I believe I bought your rhubarb and that went into some jam. Gidget, that was really good rhubarb. Um, and I asked, I, I just had obviously beef and buffalo combined beefalo, but tell me yes. a little bit about why you chose to go the beefalo route. Because first of all, it's delicious. It's lean. The flavor yes. really blew my mind when I tried it, and I'm kind of addicted to it now. So tell me, uh, what, what made you go down the beefalo road? Well, my husband would say it's because I'm difficult, because I like to pick random things. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I, I still remember I was sitting at the dairy that I, that I helped manage the financials for, and I was like, you know what? We're going to buy some beefalo. And my boss at the time was like, yeah, why? Why would you do that? But we always raised, in general, more hybrid things anyway. So we're all about, again, more natural things is not just completely breeding it over and over and over to make, you know, a certain certain feature, basically. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. what I've 
what I think is that often you breed out some of the good traits. So we started researching beefalo, and what I saw was all of this great thing about it being this hybrid vigor, calving ease. I don't want to have trouble with calves. Yeah. Like when I see some of these other breeds that have calving problems, that's not something I'm interested in. So we started getting involved in that from the livestock perspective and then got on to all the health benefits. Mm -hmm. It's also, you know, they're more efficient on pasture as well. So that kind of fit into what we wanted, again, sure. livestock-wise. Mm -hmm. And we bred in some breeds that we specifically like, like Jerseys, which are a dairy breed. But I have been part of some studies where they say, you know, it's the second highest marbled beef next to the Wagyu. Mm -hmm. So we started breeding that in as well. Mm -hmm. And that's the cool part about beefalo is you can literally breed anything in there to ah. the, as long as it has that correct percentage of bison. Okay. That's the, that's the telling factor is it has to be between that certain percentage of bison to be registered with the American Beefalo Association. Interesting. But you can control kind of a little bit of whatever works best for your operation. For oh. us, it's smaller, more efficient animals. The it's addition, not huge. Right. <laughs> and the addition of the bison provides a leanness? Yes, okay. exactly. So it's, they call it like the lean, clean beef. Really heart healthy. We've had people tell us, you know, that, that they cannot eat regular beef, but that they can eat this lean like beefalo or bison oh, even interesting. as well because it's it's more heart healthy. There's a bunch of quotes on the American Beefalo Association about the health. And actually recently I've seen two good articles come out about beefalo being the next big thing, which interesting. is exciting. Look at you. We've been doing it for 10 years. Oh my so gosh, you are ahead nice of your time. Well, when I cooked it, um, I cooked it very plain on purpose. Um, I cooked it in a cast iron with a little salt and pepper. I made some smash burgers and I really tasted it. Um, it had just enough fat in there to keep it moist, mm -hmm. but it did taste very, very clean. I was yes. just so impressed with it. Like we, 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 I mean, like I cannot wait. Like we might have to have some tonight. That's how much I loved it. Well, my last question for you, Danielle, is as someone who's put in a lifetime of uh, working on a farm and seeing a, a small family farm uh, develop and change over time, what do you feel like the benefits are for people who, who seek and buy a product like yours? I think the biggest thing is that you're truly understanding and experiencing everything about the whole process, I guess, because we can tell you anything about any of the animals that we've raised. We keep everything, you know, kind of closed because we want to. We want to know everything about it. We know that we've been breeding them for 10 years to be this way. And I think when people are supporting product like ours or supporting local, mm -hmm. the money goes right to us mm -hmm. instead of yeah. jumping down through the, the supply chain and the food chain. I, I mean, I've worked in big agriculture and you can see that one of the things is what you saw during the pandemic, they cannot pivot like we can as a small farm. Livestock, of course, is difficult to pivot in general, mm -hmm. but we can pivot a little bit easier than those bigger ones can. And so getting support from people locally and putting that the money into the local economy is huge. And it's taking us back to kind of what it was in the past. And I'm not saying you buy everything local. You know, there's balance in everything. I, sure. I'll get fast food just of like course, anybody Of course. Else. We all need it every now and then. Yes. Mm -hmm. But the balance, it, I mean, you, you can see here, mm -hmm. no, your viewers can't, but just seeing the community around it all is mm -hmm. just amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, the people that listen to CLE Foodcast are farm market people. And, you know, I think just by getting out last year, I was, uh, I did a podcast like this at Countryside. This year, I'm here at the Haymaker Farm Market. We all have our favorite farm market that's familiar to us, but I really think part of the fun, especially in the summer when um, it's beautiful, you want to get out and just experience something different. Mm -hmm. um, coming to Kent, the downtown is adorable. Trains go by, which are annoying when you're trying to do a podcast, <laughs> but really it actually adds to the environment. There's this great river walk trail. Um, there's restaurants nearby and of course the college and university campuses here. It's a great market, so you should come here, but if you feel like you can't or you just want to take a little dive into what a uh, Beefalo is because we've been singing its praises. Mm -hmm. Go to Brockett Farm. Dot com, yep. And you'll be able to read about it and see what's going on yes. with the farm. But really, if you just love following family stories and farm stories, check out Brocket Farm on Instagram. I, I just I just enjoy it. I love seeing what's going on. And I feel like I know your family, even though I don't. And uh, and Gidget, keep up the good work with those vegetables. I'll be down to buy some dill in a couple of minutes. OK, then you can buy more cookies. <laughs> Make sure you buy one for Elsie, too, okay? Which she did, did, with her own awesome. money. You're so good. All right, have a great day, Danielle. Thank, Thank you, you so much. We are still hanging out at the Haymaker Farmer's Market on this beautiful, beautiful June day. I am now with Megan Masoli from Renbox Farm, a biointensive ecological farm. She runs it with her husband, Mike. Welcome. Thank you. First of all, 
when I walk by your booth, you've got lots of wonderful looking vegetables, but it seems to me that you're a pretty compact operation and you do things in accordance with nature. You both have a, a background in environmental sciences. So I, I feel like you have a lot of real specific intention with what you're building with your farm. So why don't you tell me about Renbox Farm? Absolutely. Um, compact is a, a very, very good word for us. Um, we are just a little bit um, below an acre of produce. Uh, we keep it pretty small. Uh, my husband does still work his uh, regular full-time job. I have left my job completely to uh, pursue the farm full-time. So um, like I said, a little bit less than an acre. I do most of the things uh, my husband helps out um, after he is done working. He does all of the root crops, which is awesome. But biointensive is a huge part of it. Um, we try to do as much as we can on um, as little land as, as we can. Our entire farm is um, 11 acres and we have about six acres that that is ag we're a little bit below um, an acre in our growing and some of that does include larger things like asparagus and potatoes our drive is to do it in the most ecological way possible um, like you did say we do have backgrounds in the environmental world and my husband still does do that before farming um, I worked in the environmental field as well so we have very much kept that focus with our farm and pretty much every decision that we make is with the ecosystem of our farm yeah. um, in mind what did you do what was your area of focus when you were working professionally yeah so um, I um, it was called a an environmental inspector um, ah. and I went out to um, pipeline uh, construction sites and I made sure you know helped made sure that EPA and other environmental permits were were being followed mm -hmm. and what does your husband do so he still does uh, something very very similar but he is he takes the environmental lead for um, gas pipeline uh, construction sites. He deals with things across the board, again, like ensuring that permits are being followed. He assists with any like spill issues or anything like that that happens. He's just like this yeah. environmental broad, like reacting to everything for the most part in, okay. in construction. So you both have these careers in fields where you're looking firsthand closely at how companies and organizations are you know, interacting with the environment, treating the environment, and, and in your cases, you're you're inspecting um, those processes, that work that they were doing. How did seeing that inform the decisions that you made when you became a farmer? Um, that impacted us a lot. I mean, first and foremost, we see the impacts when things are not done properly, which again was one of our driving forces, but it also actually has made us understand and we respect very much organic certification. We are not a certified organic farm, but through working with agencies and things, we have seen that it works so much better for us to not pursue organic certification at this time um, because we can build relationships with our customers. We can answer questions with full transparency. We can make decisions based on, on you know, how we feel that we need to farm and what's the best for us and, the, again, the environment at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, That's a common theme, I mean, with farmers. Um, I've interviewed quite a few for the food podcast and... I, I've come to realize that it's not always about saying you're organic. Absolutely. Uh, I really like hearing that the farmer is in touch with uh, their own uh, products, their own land, yeah. their own animals, and they're making the best decision in the moment for yeah. to yield the product that they want. Yes, absolutely. If we try to pursue organic certification right now, we probably would be we would probably be fine um, because any product that we use um, is a certified organic product. Um, our potting soil, our fertilizers, we buy a ton of compost that's certified so you, organic. you operate like you're organic. Yeah, you yes. just haven't pursued the certification yeah, is what you're saying. We, yeah, mm -hmm. we've based on, you know, what we've learned in, in, in our past jobs, we mm -hmm. feel like we don't need that technical certification um, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. we feel like just having that transparent relationship with our customer. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just, I mean, that's the way that we want to do it anyway. Our kids go out in the field and they eat things, you know, that right. we just let them do their thing. So right. like, we want to grow the way that that's how it's, we feel is best for people and, and the environment. So Well, another piece of that um, is working in accordance with um, the land and, and with pollinators and other yeah. pieces of nature. So talk about that a little bit. You just mentioned, I think, I heard you say that you aren't using herbicides and you're, you know, you're just really gardening, you're producing vegetables naturally, you're relying on pollinators, you're really um, working with the soil. So tell me a little bit about how you do that and, and get a yield um, without using, you know, chemicals and other things that that um, would probably allow you to farm much more efficiently and maybe even faster. Yeah, that is um, that's a huge thing. That is something that we definitely have 
had to learn and are still learning. And I would say the biggest factor in that is soil quality, your soil health. That is going to be the base that is going to set the tone for how things are going to perform. So um, we are still very early in like the soil building part because we actually, when we first started this, we were not growing on our actual farm. Uh, We did that at our house in like our front yard in like a little <laughs> plot of land that um, my aunt and uncle from Heron Hill Farm, uh, who's also here at Haymaker. I saw that. Yeah, um, they gave us a little section of their farm um, to kind of learn. So now that we do have our official farm, this is our third year of soil building. Um, so pretty much for us, that is a large part of that, like I mentioned, is the compost. Um, we buy a really high quality certified organic compost and we add that twice a year, kind of a lot right now. We hope to be able to scale that down as our soil gets better, mm-hmm. but also no-till. That's another huge thing um, that we have just kind of started to get into. Um, this will be our first year, hopefully our last year, having to till any, any of our like regular beds. Mm-hmm. Um, what does no-till mean exactly? So... I mean, I've heard like some like different variations on like the technicality of this, like mm-hmm. how deep you're going or like, you know, but like pretty much just you're not disturbing the soil. Um, you're not tilling. You're not tilling deep. Um, we use a lot of tarps now. So um, instead of, you know, when I flip a bed, instead of running through with a tiller and just destroying that soil quality, mm-hmm. um, we just tarp it, mm. let that break down. Mm-hmm. So you're leaving the soil intact. You're keep letting that soil ecology just exist. Um, mm-hmm. All that mycelium, all of those you know, tiny microscopic things in that soil are creating an ecosystem. And when you don't till that, you don't disrupt it. Oh, and right. that in turn makes your plants, the quality exponentially better. We're very new in the no-till, but people who have been doing no-till for a longer time have said just as your soil and qu- soil quality increases, mm-hmm. your pest pressure decreases so you're not having to spray things Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and again you're you're opening up the availability of so many more nutrients than when you're just pulverizing your soil constantly so you're creating you're creating an ecosystem for your plants to thrive it sounds like well most farmers that i've talked to it sounds like it's a lot of work to do things that way it is it is a lot of work (laughs) and we are like most definitely learning that this year um but we um it's, it's just, you just have to be diligent, you know, with, with the weed, you have to plan ahead. That's a huge thing. Like before we could just like, Oh, the spinach is done. So we're going to tear it out and we're going to till it and like plan something in an hour. Like you can't do that with no till. So you have to really plan ahead to make mm-hmm. sure something, you know, has time to be out mm-hmm. tarped for long enough so that it can break down enough for you to put something in it again. Mm-hmm. So, so someone that has a garden at home, like a raised bed garden or whatever, they can um, they can employ some of these strategies as well, right? Absolutely. That's what I tell my friends who just have like small gardens. I'm like, whew, if I had this, like this would be no deal in no time. Um, but yeah, for sure. Like it's totally, totally doable. I mean, on a small scale, like I don't know why you wouldn't, honestly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I think I also read that you stick to using a non-GMO seed stock. Yeah. Yeah. And why, yes. why is that? Why is that important to you? I mean, honestly, that that's kind of like the standard for for the kind of vegetables um, that that we grow now. But Mm -hmm. that that more sticks to like our seed companies, like Mm -hmm. some of them will have a pledge that they won't even carry, you know, Mm -hmm. GMO products. So we were really specific about the seed companies that 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 we buy from. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's called like the safe seed pledge. Maybe I was just talking with Andrew Brunetti about that. Exactly. So like we we like to make sure that the companies that that we you know, are, are using for our seeds are, mm-hmm. are part of that and doing, okay. doing their, their part. To so at your stand today, uh, what kinds of things do you have there? What's, what's in season right now for Redbox Farm? Yeah. So we are, we're kind of in a transition. Um, some of the summer things are just starting, you know, just starting to come on. Um, but we're still very much in that early season, tons of greens, as you probably saw. Um, I have several kinds of lettuce mixes. I have several kinds of kale, um, larger bunching greens like collards and chard. Uh, we still have tons of roots. We have radish. Uh, we have carrots, which I will give Mike a shout out. He handles the roots on the farm. And he's those carrots are it. beautiful. I don't know how the man took, does it. <laughs> I took a picture of them when I was out walking before. They are just beautiful. They're like, Mike, they're picture perfect. They Carrot are. bunches. Good job, man. So I want to ask, um, how? what's the name of uh, Renbox Farm? What's the significance? How did you come up with that? Yeah, so that actually came from our first house, uh, the first two acres that we owned where we started the farm and my husband is a bird guy 
lie. I am not a bird lady, I will admit. Um, but I was just like in Amish country like one day and I found this birdhouse that I liked and I bought it. And I was like, Mike, hang this up. And he's like, it's like something about it wasn't right. Like, I don't know, because like specific <laughs> birds want specific things, you know, like for their nest. And, oh, it's a whole. And it yeah. was like not the right time of year or something. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know if anything's going to go in this. And I'm like, hang it up. I love it. Um, and he did. And uh, pretty shortly after, there was a wren in it. And Aww. then every year from then, we have wrens in it. We still do. We've taken it to the new farm, and there's still still always wrens in it. So we wanted something that um, signified like our first place where the farm really started, and it was, was the wren box. That's Thanks. such a great story. Just, somehow I just knew there'd be a really cool story there. Okay, so Megan, if people want to know more about Renbox Farm, they go to renboxfarm.com and yep. you're also on some social media channels, I believe. Yeah, yes, um, Instagram, Facebook. Um, pretty diligent about updating those just with what we'll have at markets or just like what we're doing that day. So. Okay, terrific. Well, thanks for being on the CLE Foodcast. I really loved hearing about your background and how you took your individual backgrounds and decided to, um, you know, apply those things. Init- at first, it didn't sound like, you know, you're in this oil and gas inspection kind of field, but I would imagine <laughs> you definitely learned a thing or two about how we should be treating Earth. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Well, with that, we are wrapping up our day at the Haymaker Farmer's Market here in beautiful Kent, Ohio. Lizette Barton is back. She is, if you will recall from the beginning of the podcast, she is the board president and an active vendor here, maker of jams, jellies, grower of herbs, and um, as I understand it, singer of karaoke. Well... <laughs> kind of. According, I, According to this gentleman that just walked by, he got me amped up and I feel like karaoke you know, now. he started talking about a wine bar in Ravenna and it just went south from there. But that's okay. All right. Well, we wanted to bring you back at the end. First of all, I want to thank you for being a supporter. I love that this has gotten me out to a market that, frankly, I love and I just don't get to enough. Um, and I just want to tell you, uh, we have people that listen all over, like, the Northeast Ohio area. You know, in my opinion, everywhere is close by. I I will drive anywhere for good food and a good meal. And I think that this is a destination market in an adorable college town with things that you're going to want to see. Lizette, I know you'll agree. You guys work really hard to make this market terrific. I know you wanted to talk about a couple of other initiatives and programs and things you're doing here with the market and your fundraiser. Yes, Uh, we have a couple community events uh, July 2nd, we're actually celebrating for real the 30th anniversary, so we'll have a ribbon cutting, and we're going to do a large community photograph. So a great uh, regular customer is a photographer, Brad Bolton, very talented. He's going to come, and anyone who wants to be in this photograph can be in it, and that's at 11 a.m. on July 2nd. And July 2nd is also Heritage Fest in Kent, so there'll be all kinds of stuff happening for the 4th of July weekend. This is perfect, because this is going to run on the 28th, and maybe I'll even try to release it a little earlier, but we'll talk, I'll pr- we'll promote that. I'll yeah. share Cool. All right. Okay. Um, the other thing we have going on this summer, um, August 7th, is our community potluck. That's at Plum Creek Park. Anyone can come. You just bring a local dish to pass. We'll have live music. We have our prized pickler contest. So that's super fun. Um, and then our big fundraiser is September 18th, and we've never done anything like this before. We actually just became a 501c3 at the end of 2019, and we kind of had some plans. And then, of course, the pandemic started and all of our kind of extra money and effort went towards keeping the market open during COVID. So this will be our first real fundraiser. And so we're doing a farm to table brunch on September 18th, and it's going to be at the Venice Cafe and Chef Jeff Crow will be preparing the food. The tickets are for sale at the market booth and they're $75. And the money is all going to go to just regular market expenses, but also to promote our program called the Power of Produce. And when you're talking about local food and just how important it is to teach kids about local food, not only the health benefits, but also where it comes from and to meet people that are growing and raising things and kind of the work that's involved with, you know, your hamburger or your peas. So the power of produce is really cool. It's an educational program we do each week and we're totally self-funding it right now. And anyone 12 and under can come up to the booth. You get $2 in market tokens to be spent on any local produce. And there's always like an educational thing. So you get to taste test. So today's taste test was shelling peas. And so the children get to taste them. They can keep notes and keep track of, learn about it. And then they'll be able to spend their $2 kind of anywhere at the market. And one thing that we like to do about this is of course we have um, someone running it 
but also we don't want to ask farmers to donate stuff, right? So mm -hmm. lots of times farmers get asked to donate to things and we respect and value all of our growers. So we want to pay for all the product, right? So like the farm to table, nothing's donated, you know, um, the same with the power of produce. We buy the products each week and, and we think that's important, but it, this is just a really great program to educate folks, especially kids. And then the uh, farm to table is just a way for us to kind of get together as a community, eat a great meal, um, all with products grown and raised by the folks here, and then also to help pro to provide money to fund this project to educate kids about the importance of local foods. Well said. I do not <laughs> think that we can do any better than that unless we would break into some kind of song. And hey, Lizette, <laughs> if you were singing karaoke right now, what would your song be? Oh my gosh. Oh geez, I can't. This is so hard. Oh, we, I was singing Eddie Money earlier, so I would probably what sing, take me home tonight. Yeah, of course, is that it? So okay. yeah, I, I made a mix. I made a mix of uh, mix for this my day job thing, all about songs about home, and so that was on there. And I've just been singing Eddie Money for like two days. Awesome. I confess that a couple of uh, days ago, I heard Bonnie Raitt, Total Eclipse of the Heart, Ooh. and it took me right back to age fifteen <laughs> when I was full of teenage angst and I was really like just pining over a boy. And mm. I think if I had a voice at all, I would try to sing it. I have no voice, so I, can, I that's why I don't karaoke. So, so I we'll guess we'll talk about what we would karaoke, but we won't actually karaoke. We for are your just fans not brave enough friends. to karaoke. No, we no, we're not going to do it. <laughs> all right, we're wrapping up at the Haymaker Farmers Market. I will end this podcast the way I end all of my podcasts with a reminder to stay hungry, stay hungry for knowledge, stay hungry for knowing people, stay hungry for knowing where your food comes from. Be kind goes without saying. Like we could all use a little bit more kindness, and always, always set a bigger table invite people into your home get to know them eat good food thanks so much for listening to the CLE Foodcast. cast